Ephesians chapter 1, you guys can turn with me. We're going to dive right in. Uh, we're looking at uh, kind of a, a second kind of part to uh, our, our f- first part uh, when we introduced this series a few weeks ago. Now, we've had a, a couple things in between. Last week, you guys got Anthony uh, teaching you some good things uh, in Scripture. Uh, the week before, uh, we had that Q&A service where you guys were able to ask questions. But the week before that, so three weeks ago, uh, we started a new series in the Bible uh, within the letter of Ephesians. And so uh, we learned that, um, that Ephesus was the city that Paul came to in Acts chapter 19 and where he stayed for three years uh, longer than any other place that he stayed. He really knew uh, this church at Ephesus. And uh, we, we also learned those few weeks ago, and just as a reminder, that this letter is entitled to the Ephesians, which of course was written to a church at Ephesus. That was the city, and so that's why it's called Ephesians. Just like we are in California, so we are what? Californians, right? And so this is the Ephesians. This is the people who live in Ephesus. Now, though we believe it was to them, we believe that the impact of this letter was much bigger than that. Um, Due to the content in this sixth chapter letter, we believe that it would have been something that was circulated. Um, You see, back then, they didn't have the complete canon of Scripture. Now you and I have the Bible. We don't need any dude to write us a letter for us to teach on a Sunday morning. It's already been written. But at this time, the Bible is still in process uh, in this way. The New Testament canon, uh, which is the, the 27 books in the New Testament, was still being literally written by God through his people. And so at that time, they would receive this authoritative letter by Paul. They'd be stoked on it because Paul the Apostle wrote you a letter about God, who he is, and what we should do about it. And so they bring it into church on a Sunday morning. They read it. They talk about it. They, they look to the words of Paul. They look to the Old Testament because that was their foundation. And then, uh, but they don't keep it to themselves. It was at Ephesus maybe one week, and then it would circulate to another city in that area of what was ancient Asia Minor, and it would have gone to another city called Laodicea, uh, and, then, uh, and then other cities in that area as well. That'd be kind of weird, right? Imagine we got a letter, and then, you know, there's another church down the street, like next week they get it, and then the week after that, then we get it back. Uh, but that's kind of how, it, this is the beginning, this is the foundation of the church. And one of the reasons we believe that it was more general truth in nature is because There's not a lot of specific things that Paul addresses to the Ephesians. If you guys ever have read any of the other New Testament letters that Paul writes to churches, like Philippians or even Colossians or especially Galatians, uh, when he writes to them, it's, it's very specific. There's general truth, of course, for us to understand, but he says, hey, you know, like when he talks to Galatians, he, he talks about specific circumstances and situations that they went through at that church. And so it's a little bit different here in Ephesians because you're not going to see very, per, you're not going to see that personal touch, if you will. Uh, it's more general truth. And so that's why we can come to this Sunday morning and, and receive all that God would want to have. You can note this down just as a way of reminder uh, and a way of introduction. This is kind of the breakdown of the letter. And I wanted to put this back in front of you 
uh, since it's been a few weeks. And you might see this exact slide over the course of our series together, because in my mind, in my opinion, this is the most simple breakdown of this incredible letter uh, to the Ephesians. Uh, you see in the first three chapters, so six chapters total, but it's broken in half. And the first three has to do all what God has done. And so over the next handful of weeks together, that's what we're talking about. This is what God did. This is what we have in Jesus, uh, and so on and so forth. And it builds the foundation so that when we come to chapter four, five, and six, we will know what we should do. And the order is important. You see, you and I can only know what we, we should do in our lives based upon what God has said and done for us. You see, some people try to make their own path uh, and they get lost. Uh, it's confusing when you don't know your origin and you don't know why you were created. You don't know your purpose. You make it up, but nothing ever satisfies. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians tell us what we have and who we are in Jesus, what God has done for us. And then chapter four is very practical in nature. Now, this is what you go and do as a Christian. Okay, does that make sense? So that's, that's the breakdown that I want you guys to keep in mind. Now, it is within this first section uh, of Ephesians chapter one that Paul begins to get into the role of salvation. And I want you to look in your Bibles and look at Ephesians chapter one. You should be turned there if not already. But Ephesians chapter one, our first time together three weeks ago, we looked at the first six verses. And if you notice in your Bibles, the first two verses are the greeting. This is how we come to the understanding that this is Paul writing and it's the Ephesians who are receiving it. And then in verse three, starting in verse three, going all the way to verse 14, this is what is known as Paul's poem. He kind of just gets so excited. He, start, he says, blessed be the God, and then he just takes off. And uh, we had talked about a few weeks ago that that verses 3 through 14, that's a pretty good section. Look in your Bibles. That's pretty long. There's multiple sentences in English. Well, in the original Greek language, it's actually one continuous sentence. That is one long sentence. The idea is that it is continual in thought. That verse 3 has to do with verse 4. And verse 4 has to do with verse 5. And all the way to 14, it is one chunk. Some people believe that this was actually put into a hymn where the early church would actually sing what God had done for them. Did you guys catch that hymn that we sung together? It was a little bit of a different pace. You know, the last song, uh, Great Things, that was, uh, that was upbeat and we were singing and it was, it was awesome. But then we, we sang that second song uh, about... Um, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but, but where it was kind of, they had the vows and the, it's a little bit older in nature. That's a hymn, right? And so it's a little more doctrinal. It's a little more uh, uh, instructional. You actually can learn from the song. So people believe that this, this verses three through 14 could have been even something along those lines. And uh, what we see though, what is this poem about? What is verse three through 14 about? It's all about, God's role in our salvation. The fact that you and I have eternal life. Well, how do we have that? And what did God do? And so we, we looked at our last time together. First of all, the father's role 
in our salvation because of his, his blessings, uh, his choosing, and his ultimate acceptance of us in Jesus. Uh, but we, we see in this section that it's not just about the Father and what he did, but it's also about the other two in the Trinity, in the Godhead, right? We have the Father, and then what? The Son, and then who? The Holy Spirit. That is what the Bible describes that we refer to as the Trinity, meaning God is one, but three. He, 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 is, he is three in essence. He is three in representation. That, that it's, it's, a, it's, it's something we're not going to dive into, but we see that Jesus is God. We see that God the Father is God, and we see that the Holy Spirit is God, and they each have their individual roles that they've played in our salvation. And so three weeks ago, we looked at the Father's role in our salvation, and today we're going to look at the other two. What did Jesus do? What was his role in our salvation? And then what is the Holy Spirit's role? Now, I do want to give you another heads up. This section that we're about to read is jam-packed. Verses 3 through 14 is honestly, it's a little intimidating to study and teach on my part because it's so thick. It's just one thing after another. I'm like, okay. And even to study this week, trying to wrap my brain and asking the Lord for revelation. But, you know, my my mind kind of went to an illustration. Uh, Have you guys ever been to a resort before? Raise your hand if you've ever been to like a a resort or like an all-inclusive resort. Okay, a, a few of you. Well, if you haven't, let me, let me paint the picture for you. Uh, it's an awesome thing uh, to be able to go to a resort type of place for a week, especially if it's all-inclusive, meaning like all your meals are already provided for. It's, it's a treat. Maybe you've been on a cruise before. Now, you know, it, it kind of goes like this. You know, you, you typically are traveling for a while, and then you finally arrive at the hotel, at the resort. You're tired. You got up early to get on the plane. And you get there, and it's just this beautiful entrance, right? And, that, and uh, you get out of the car, and then there's like these people that are taking your bags, and they're helping you. And so you're, you know, you're tired. You just want to get to the room. And so your parents, first, though, they have to go to the front desk, right? And why do they have to go to the front desk? What do they got to do there? Yeah. Yeah, they got to check in, right? They got to make sure that they get know what room they're in. And so they go up to the front desk. And what does the front desk ask them? They ask them for their name, right? What's the, what's, what's the reservation under? And they look then in the system to figure out if they're there or not. And only if they're in the system, then they begin to, to tell them all they need to know, right? Your room number is, uh, is 823. It's going to be on the third floor of the fourth building. And they begin to go down that list, right? Here's your Wi-Fi password. Uh, here, here's a map of our entire facility. And, uh, and so the front desk begins to go into all that's going to be provided through the week, right? And then after that, before you can go up to your room, Typically, if it's a nicer resort, they will then have you speak to what is known as the concierge. You guys ever heard of someone like that? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. This is a person who is literally on property to just help people have a good time, basically. 
And so you go and you talk to the, the concierge. I don't know why I have to say it like that, but it just, it just is. And so, and so then they begin to lay out. They say, okay, this is a, your all-inclusive meal package. You have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but you do need to make reservations. And the reservations, you can make it here, here, here. Here's the coffee bar. You also have exclusions included in your packa- uh, package. You can go snorkeling, you can go skydiving, you can go this. I don't know about skydiving, but, but you guys get what I'm saying. And in that initial moment, you're almost like overwhelmed with information. You're like, oh my gosh, and it's all awesome. You're like, this is great, but can I just get to my room? Like this, and then, and, but I'm excited, and, and it starts to, to pump you up, right? This is the pool, oh, here's the rock slide, and there's all this awesomeness jam-packed into this like initial conversation. That is kind of how I see Ephesians chapter one. Paul writes, and before he can get into any details, he's just like, okay, this is what you have in the Lord. Because you're saved, this is how the process is. And, he, and it's just like excitement as he gets into it. And so as we read, it's a lot of information. It's a lot of stuff there, but it's all good. Cool? Let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read verse 7, and we'll read down to the end of the section, which will be verse 14. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We should be doing that out of reverence for his word. The Bible says this, verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him, we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for this jam-packed section We thank you for all the benefits and blessings we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, this truly is good news. And Lord, in that, just like we would get to that resort and there'd be that initial excitement, we pray that you would bring excitement to our hearts as we realize all that we have in you. It's already been paid for. We're in the system. And so God, that you would just bring clarity to our mind that we might rejoice in the God of our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, you can have a seat. Now, what you're going to notice about some of the things that we talk about is the overlap. Though there are these distinct roles that God the Father plays in our salvation, there's a different role that Jesus plays, and there's a different role that the Holy Spirit plays place, right? It's important that we know these distinctions. It, we need to know that it wasn't the Holy Spirit who died for us. It wasn't God the Father who died for us. Now, it was God the Father who sent the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit 
and it was Jesus Christ who died from us, for us. And so uh, at the same time, though it is God who died on that cross and there is absolute unity in the Godhead, we need to know the individual roles that God plays. And so the first thing that we're looking at today within the, these first few verses, verses 7 through 12, is the role of the Son. We looked at the role of the Father those few weeks ago, verses 3 through 6. And then after we look at this one, we're going to look at the role of the Spirit. And that's the last two verses, verses 13 and 14. And so the, the role of the Son we once again kind of see this important phrase used. Look in your Bibles, look at verse seven, the very first verse we read today. Notice the words, in him. And, and the reason that our message is entitled, again, in him, part two, is because that's what this is all about. This is the place to be. We must be in him. There is no salvation in any other name, the Bible says, other than Jesus. And so the only way that we experience salvation, forgiveness of sins, is being in Jesus. But before we can move on to the benefits, we must first be found in him. Going back to that, that illustration, imagine if your parents went up to the front desk, they give them their name, but they say, we don't have you in the system. If you're not in the system, then all those benefits, the excursions, the, the meal plan, the, the location of the pool, it doesn't matter because you're not getting in, right? And so you're not going to get to go see uh, the, the front desk people to, to lay you out. You're not going to get a mat. You're not going to get the Wi-Fi password because you're not in the system. And so it is important before we move on to the blessings and benefits that we understand what it means to be in in Jesus, which is to put your faith and your trust in him and to be, of course, to receive him as Lord. But we, we have talked about that. And so the first thing I want you to note down is the fact that he redeems. This is the primary work of Jesus. God the Father chooses. God the Father sends. He blesses. He, he accepts as we're in Jesus. But Jesus' primary and really singular role in our salvation is he is our redeemer. Everyone say redeemer. This concept of Christ being a redeemer, the one who redeems us, is very foundational to our faith. But we got to know what it means. Redemption. What does this mean, this word redemption? In him, we find this in verse 7, we have redemption. This is what it means, essentially. It is the act of freeing someone, such as, an example, that of a prisoner by the payment of a ransom. That, that it's, it's, it's someone who comes in on the behalf of someone else, pays the penalty, pays the price, and so that person who didn't pay anything gets to go free. And in him, in Jesus, we've been set free. You, you and I once, you're like, I didn't know I was a slave. You were. Without Jesus, you are. You are slave to sin, the Bible says, and you are bound by your mortality. But God wants to give us eternal life, which is ultimately immortality. It's the concept that he wants us to have life and life more abundantly. But now you and I have been ransomed and we are free in Jesus. You and I, in him, experienced his 
redemption. And redemption is one of the coolest things ever. It's what makes the best stories. The best movies always have a concept of redemption. And the best story ever written, which is the Bible and the gospel of Christ, is all about redemption. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Verses 13 to 14 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He redeemed us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Listen, maybe you've believed in Christ your whole life, that that ever since you were a kid, you remember that that you've put your trust and faith in. That's awesome. And that's because of um, what I'm going to assume is the influence of your parents or someone in your life who's told you about Jesus. But listen, without him, the power of darkness is over your life. That if it wasn't for those maybe early years of belief and trust, and if you ever choose to, to, to no longer walk in that commitment, you are bound and under the control, the Bible says, that Satan takes those captive. Why don't people believe in God? Because Satan blinds them, the Bible says. But you, you've been delivered, conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. Notice verse 14 in whom we have, what is that word? Redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus's role in our salvation is his redemption. There's a story that is often told uh, with this topic of redemption, and it's very helpful for us to understand what this means, the, the weight of what Jesus did for you and I. And the story kind of goes like this to illustrate redemption. It talks about a small boy who lived in a, in a city on the shore of this very great lake. And this boy, he loved the water. He loved sailing. And so deep was his fascination uh, for boating and, and the water that with the help of his father, this boy spent months making a beautiful model boat. Have you guys ever heard this story? It's a good one. And so he, he spends his time making this beautiful model boat in and, and which he began to sail. He, he would set it in the, the great lake and, and kind of watch it and, and have some way of, of getting it back to him. But then one day, a sudden gust of wind caught that tiny boat and carried it so far out to the lake that it became out of sight. Distraught, that boy went home. He was he was unconsol- inconsolable. You, you couldn't, he was crying. He was upset. He lost what, what, what he had spent so many months building and creating with his own dad. And so day after day, this boy would go back out to the lake and he would, he would, he would have the hope. He would walk the shores hoping that he would find that boat, but it was always in vain. And then one day, as he was walking through the town, he saw his beautiful model boat, but it was in the window of a store. The story goes that he approached the store owner. He announced his ownership. He said, that's my boat. And the store owner replies to him, that's not your boat. Well, it might be your boat, but I paid a pretty penny for that boat. A local fisherman uh, sold it to me just a week ago. And so though he was the owner He was not the owner at that time. It had been taken from him. And the owner told him that he would have to pay the price if he wanted it. And so the lad 
this, this boy set himself to work. Every day for the next handful of weeks, he returned that he might receive enough money. And one day he had it. And so he returns to the store with the money. And at last he pays the price and he gets the boat. And as he holds the boat in his arms, he said with great joy, you are twice mine now because I made you and now I bought you. And that is the picture of redemption. You see, Jesus Christ in the beginning made you. He made Adam and Eve and he had made you in the womb. But, but because of the decisions of sin, there was separation. And so though God created you, he no longer had a relationship with you. But through Jesus Christ, he bought you back. And now Jesus himself would say, you are twice mine as a believer you see, this is why Jesus came. He came to redeem us, right? We know this from the Gospels. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and notice, give his life as a ransom. What was, what was the price he paid? It was his life. He, he put himself on the cross that he might buy you back, that he might redeem you, that, he might, that you might be his. We find a foreshadow of this in the Old Testament. You guys ever heard of something called the kinsman redeemer? It's, a, it's something that is talked about in the Old Testament as a way for, for Jews to help those who are distant relatives. This was someone who, according to the law, was able to step in on behalf of another and rescue them. And you see, what God did, kinsman is the idea of family, that, that he came in to this world to be our kinsman redeemer. Why? Well, Hebrews 2.11 says this, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he being Jesus, notice the end, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus had to become a human, one of us. He had to become, in a sense, a brethren, uh, someone of, of, of like nature, so that he could then stand in the place that you and I were supposed to stand, and he became our kinsman redeemer. Now, I want you to note a couple things down about this redemption. Because look at verse 7 in your Bibles. He says, in him we have redemption. And then it gives some details. That this redemption came through his blood. It resulted in the forgiveness of sins. And it was according to the riches of his grace. You guys see that in verse 7? And so what I want you to note down is the cost of redemption. It's given to us right there. The cost of redemption, according to verse 7, is his blood. The only way that he was able to buy us back, that he was able to set us free, blood had to be spilled. Why? Because that is the penalty for sin. The Bible says here in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You guys know what wages are? So like your, your parents, if they work, they have a certain wage. If you have an older sibling, they, they maybe just got their first job and so they work for minimum wage. It's the idea of payment. And so because of our sin, because we have lied, because we have disobeyed God, we have broken his law, 
the penalty for any amount of sin, which you and I have enough, is death. You're like, that sounds crazy. Yes. <laughs> that, that is why the news is so good. That's why this is, his redemption is so great. It's because without him dying for us, who's got to take the death? Us. And the Bible says, because you and I have sinned against an eternal God, that the punishment is also eternal. And so what Jesus did on that cross by his blood being spilt, by the crown of thorns on his head, by the, by the, the lashings that he took on his body, by the blood that would spurt out as a result of nails going in his, his wrists and in his feet, as they pierced him after he was already dead and blood and water came out of his side, why did he have to spill blood? Death was required, but he said, I'll take it. It was through his blood that we are redeemed. And that's why we describe the blood of Jesus as precious. You know, in most other situations, blood is not something that is precious. It would never be described as something valuable. We can kind of understand the concept a little bit uh, for those who maybe are in our military who die out on the battlefield and their blood was spilt for you and I to have freedom. Well, greater than that, Jesus ransomed his body. He put his body on the line. He died. He was tortured. He experienced death and separation from the Father. And so now, being 2,000 years removed, we look back on what he did, and we say, that's precious. That's valuable. Peter Talk, says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. It wasn't anything that was corruptible, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is referring to those Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is something altogether different. You know, someone who maybe is unfamiliar with Jesus in the Bible, the idea that his blood is precious, valuable, it's something very strange. But when you begin to understand the value of the blood of Christ, that, that's the idea that it was his sacrifice. He, he put himself on the line for you and I. And so that's the cost of redemption. Listen, it wasn't free. You guys realize that, right? Yeah, redemption was free for you and I, but it was not cheap. It cost Jesus everything. Make sense? So that's the cost. Secondly, I want you to note down the climax of redemption, the conclusion. What, what is the result, the source of our redemption? Well, it's right there, still in verse 7. The forgiveness of sin. You see, it is only through his blood that you and I can experience forgiveness. And that's kind of weird. Like, why, do, why does he have to bleed so that we can be forgiven? Well, notice Hebrews 9.22 says, and according to the law, what God set in motion in the Old Testament, almost uh, all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That word remission is the word forgiveness. It had to be blood. It was either going to be yours or it was going to be his. And those are the only two options. Someone will pay. Why? Because the Bible describes God as a good and just ju uh, judge. He is someone who must, by his very nature, uphold righteousness. 
And you see, the best judges are those who hold up the law, right? And so his law requires blood. That is the penalty. But his love sent his son. And those things are not in opposition, but they are perfectly blended together. That his love is holy, his justice is holy, but in Jesus, you and I don't have to experience his wrath, which is a just thing, which is a good thing. Psalm 103 verse 12 describes what kind of forgiveness we have in God. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Does anyone know why the psalmist here used east and west and not north and south? Anyone have any insight? Your sin, he says, as far as east is from the west, that's how far you're removed. Why didn't he say north and south? Uh, Yeah. Doesn't have to do with the sun. You have an idea? They're opposites. Okay. Yeah. That's that's part of it. Yeah. But north and south are opposites too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so he said it, be, it expands beyond all measure. Meaning if you ever take a globe, do you guys have globes at home? I know growing up we had one. Now they're not as, as common. But if you ever look at a globe, have you guys ever seen a globe? You know, like a physical earth? Okay, good. Um, so if you, take, if you take your finger and start at the equator, the middle of earth, and begin to go east, and you just keep going around, you will always go east. You never start going west. You could be there for eternity. Just keep going east. But the thing with, if you take that same globe and you start at the equator and you start going north, you're going north for about a second and then what are you doing? You're beginning to go south and then north and then south. The reason he used east from west is because God said it's done with. That forgiveness that you have, you don't, your sin is dealt with never to be brought up again. The Bible says that he removes our sin and throws it into the depths of the sea. It's not the idea that you could get a submarine and go get it. It's the idea it's gone. East from the west is God will never bring it up again because the wrath of God is satisfied by the love of God in Christ, his son, who took what we should have took. And so you and I can experience that forgiveness. Everyone look at me. Outside of the blood of Jesus, there is no forgiveness you will, outside of him, have to deal with the consequences of what you've done in your life. And so that's why we rejoice. That's why there's joy in Jesus. And then thirdly, the cause of redemption. We find that still in verse seven. He says that this redemption is according to the riches of his grace. You see, this was all able to happen because of the grace of God. And God in the Bible is described about being rich in grace. And that's what we have right here, meaning that this redemption, it doesn't come from our own goodness. We didn't die on the cross. Our blood wasn't spilled. And so our salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. Can I get an amen? 1 Timothy 1.14 says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. It doesn't just say abundant, exceedingly. It's, it's the idea that it is overwhelmingly good how he did this because we did nothing with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 
Pretty awesome, right? So we got the cost, the climax, the cause of redemption. You guys feel like you understand what it means that he is our redeemer? He bought us with his blood, and now we are doubly his. Now, verse 8 tells us, look there. He goes on, and again, this is a continuous thing, and so stick with me for a second before we move on to the Holy Spirit. He says, it's with this redemption that we're told that God made it abound toward us. This word abound, it means to shower, to, to, to lavish, to have more than enough, meaning that this redemption, it goes beyond just saving our life. That would have been enough, right, for, for our sins to be forgiven, like that, that's pretty good. You mean I don't have to spend an eternity in hellfire and torture experiencing the penalty for what I did and I don't have to do anything? No, you just put your faith and trust in Jesus. You give him your life here in this, in this very short life. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds pretty good. But it goes beyond that. That, that would have been enough, but, but, but there's so much more that you and I have in Jesus that God now it, it, it considers us family. He adopts us into his family. God gives us his Holy Spirit. He wants us not only to enjoy eternity, but now he, he supplies an everlasting amount of joy and peace and strength and anything we need, the Bible says, we find it in Jesus. And so he goes beyond, it, it abounds. It goes way beyond just the fact of eternal life. Really, as Christians, our eternal life starts now. The moment that we put our faith in Jesus, we have eternal life. We're not just waiting for eternal life. Why? John 17, 3 says, Jesus says that, that this is eternal life to know God, to know me. And so you and I can begin to experience all that Jesus paid for us now. And so it abounds. It goes way beyond. And the only reason that you and I discovered this is because God initiated it. This is what we talked about a little bit a few weeks ago. You see, did, did you and I go out looking for God? We didn't. It was God, and even for someone who goes on a quest to look for God, it was only because God put them on that quest in the first place. We only love God because he, what? First loved us. I want you to remember that verse, 1 John four nineteen. We love him because he, what? first loved us, first. And so that's what we're, what we're told in the rest of this, this passage. Look at verse nine. Uh, it, it says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensa dispensation, and he goes on and on and on here. And we're, we don't have time to get into it, but this is the idea that what God concealed in the Old Testament he revealed in Jesus. And the only reason that we know the will of God and what God is planning and what God is doing is because he came to us. He loved us first. He is the author, the initiator of our faith. We respond, but it was all him. And so Jesus's role in our salvation was that he initiated it. Why? Well, because one day, Everything is going to be about Jesus. That's basically what verse 10 says. There's a lot of words there in verse 10 that we simply don't have the capacity of time to get into. But God says that he's going to gather everything in Christ. I mean, that there's going to be a day where this, 
this world as we know it ends. And the only thing that's going to matter is Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, 9, 10 and 11 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This talks about a future time that the Bible says that everyone is going to bow their knee and confess him as Lord. And some that day will do it with reluctancy. But you and I, we can do it now. We can bow our knee before Jesus. We can confess him as Lord because some, they will do it with shame and regret. But everyone one day, that the greatest of atheists, the, the craziest of agnostics, they will all bow before Jesus. But you and I, we get to know his will now and so that we can bow our knee before him. Cool? Okay, secondly, and, and we got to roll through this a little bit. I want to talk to you about the last two verses, which is the role of the spirit, right? We talked about the role of the father a few weeks ago. We talked about the role of the son. He's redeemer. But uh, very cool and very quickly, we'll go through the role of the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. You guys good? Okay. Look there, verse 13 and 14. We'll read them again. Now he transitions to talking about the Holy Spirit, who is not a force. He is a person. He is the third person within the Godhead. He is a him. Kind of weird, right? The Holy Spirit is a him. As much as Jesus is a him, the Holy Spirit is a him, H-I-M. It says, in him, that would be Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed, everyone say sealed, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, everyone say guarantee, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession the praise of his glory. The first role that we see of the Holy Spirit is that he seals. He comes in after you have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ, he seals you. That's what verse 13 tells us. Paul is talking to those who trust and believe in Jesus. If you don't trust and believe in him, then, then you do not get to experience the role of the Spirit in your life. But this is very cool. This word to seal, it means this, to secure as a sign of ownership. The Holy Spirit comes and puts his mark on your life. And he does that by coming into your life. Right now, whether you feel him or not, and you, you ain't going to feel him because he's not a physical force. He is a spiritual person, though. The Bible says that God is spirit. And it's a trip. But if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then God himself... He, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. And the fact that he is in you is the fact of your seal. He, 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 he seals the deal in a sense. And this is God's way of showing us that we are his. God says, now that you experience my redemption in Jesus, what I already chose from the beginning, I want to put my seal on you. What does this speak of? Well, number one, you can note it down. It speaks of identification. This speaks of the fact that you are 
his identification. Now, back in the day when this letter would have been written, Ephesians, when rulers and kings, when they would send out letters, they would have their signet ring. They would have a a ring that would symbolize their rulership and authority. And it would be something significant and, and special to them. It would be a ring that no one else would have. And one of the purposes of this signet ring was for the purpose of sending letters. You see, back then, you couldn't just make a phone call. You had to have messengers that you would write a letter, and they would then send it. But the security was of the utmost importance when it came to ruling. And so uh, they would send letters along this line. Uh, It would look different, of course. Now, that's a very simple signet, and it's not a ring. Uh, But the idea is that you melt the wax, you put that ring that has that signet, an emblem that represented the kingdom, and you would dip it in the wax and you would seal the letter. And one of the reasons was so that when that recipient got that letter, he would see, oh, this is from King so-and-so. And because no one else had that insignia, no one else had that emblem, it would be for the purpose of identification. And so for you and I, he puts his Holy Spirit in our lives regarding identification. Does anyone have a a passport? You see, if you've ever looked at your passport, there is the insignia or the emblem. There is the seal of the United States on your passport, if it is indeed a U.S. passport. And what's the purpose of that? And so what does this communicate? When you, when you go up to customs, they see the passport and they, they, they know that the seal is representative of your identification. They know you're U.S. citizen, right? Because of that seal, because of that emblem. Does that make sense? But secondly, you can note down, it doesn't just speak of identification, but also protection, protection. Going back to that way that letters would be sealed with that signet ring, It was not only the purpose for identification, but also protection, protection of what was inside the letter. You see, kings would have to go through measures to ensure that that letter wouldn't be doctored, wouldn't be edited by the time it got to the the person they needed it to go to. And so in a security and protective measure, they would put that seal. Because if that letter got to that person and there might be the identification, but if the seal is broken then they know that letter is no good. I can't trust the source that this is coming from. We see the same word used for a Roman seal that would have been put on Jesus's tomb uh, in Matthew 27, verse 66. It says, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the the, the stone and setting the guard. This is when Jesus died. They put him in that tomb. And this would have been a Roman seal. Now, you and I all know how that worked out. Did that seal stick? Did that work? No, because on that third day, on that Sunday morning, uh, it was Jesus who left that tomb, uh, which he was not supposed to do. You see, unlike a Roman seal that we have seen that can be broken, the seal of God on the mark on the life of a believer will never be broken until he sees you in heaven. You see, God never breaks his promise. 
And one of his ways to ensure you of this is he puts his seal on you by giving you his Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit in you that is going to help you all along the way until you get to heaven. It is both for identification and for protection. But secondly, you can note down that the Holy Spirit not only seals us, but very connected to this idea, we find in verse 14 that he guarantees us. It's a guarantee. What the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer is is what we just talked about. It's that guarantee that you're going to make it all the way through. He's going to see you through. This word guarantee, it means the, the first installment. It's the idea of a pledge. It's a down payment or a partial payment. It's God's way of, of telling you, I'm good for it. I, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. Though we're not together like we one day will be, I'm going to keep you on this earth, but, but, but this is my guarantee to you. We're going to see each other one day. You guys ever gone somewhere and had to like check out a basketball or like a ping pong paddle? You go somewhere and they have the, they have the table there, but no paddles. And so you have to go in and sometimes you got to give them like your keys or I guess, I mean, you, get, don't, you don't have keys or license, but you don't have a license, but you got to give them something valuable so that they ensure that you're going to bring that, that, that paddle back right? Or you check out that basketball and, and they want to make sure that, they, that you bring that back. And so you give them, uh, in a sense, a guarantee. Well, I can't leave without my keys, so here's my keys. Let me have the paddle so I can go play some ping pong. That's the idea of a, of a guarantee. Or maybe you've seen this on some of the uh, products that you've had, right? Where they say, right, satisfaction guaranteed. They're saying, hey, listen, we, we put our seal on this and it's for the purpose of guaranteeing. If, if you don't like it, you come back and we give you a refund, right? Now, it's not the fact that God gives us his Holy Spirit so we can get a refund with God. Uh, you won't want that. Once the Holy Spirit's in, he's there to stay. And it's the fact, notice, the guarantee until the redemption of the purchased possession. It's kind of like an engagement ring, right? An engagement ring, what happens with that? The man gives the woman that engagement ring, and that's a promise. Though we're not together as we one day will be, this is my guarantee that I'm going to see you. I'm going to marry you one day. And that's the idea. It's a guarantee. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, is God's ring to us saying, we will always be together. And that's a special thing. It's a special thing for you and I. And that's why the Holy Spirit is such an important role within our lives as believers. We see this concept in a couple of the verses in 2 Corinthians, both chapter 1 and chapter 2. You can just note down the reference. We see that he's given us this this guarantee to assure our hearts. He who has prepared us for this very thing, he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's God's way of saying, I will never be done with you. And so this is why we really need to understand the full scope of God's salvation in our life. He's chosen us from the foundation of the world. He's redeemed us uh, by Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who seals and guarantees our life. And what's the whole purpose of this thing? Well, there is a phrase that's repeated in this whole section. I don't know if you guys have caught it in our reading. But look at verse 6. That's where we're going to close. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then look at the end 
of verse 12. He says, once more, to the praise of his glory. And then notice at the very end of verse 14, you're going to have your Bibles open to see it. He says, to the praise of his glory. Why did God save us? Yes, because he loves us. But it was, it was actually all for his glory. Why did God create in the first place? For his glory. This is what is known as the chief end of man. Our ultimate purpose in this life is to live in a way that brings glory to God. And so you want to fulfill the very purpose and reason and intention you were created by God? It is to live in a way that glorifies him and that starts by receiving Jesus, by knowing what he did, and then living for him every single day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, this, this great news. It ain't just good news, it's great. Lord, that you have delivered us from the power of darkness, the power of sin, the power of death, because you broke, you destroyed you took the keys back. You, 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 you dealt with sin at that cross. And God, we thank you for that redemption. We thank you for just the, the richness of your grace. That you didn't just redeem our souls, but you went so beyond that. You redeemed every aspect about our life because that's what you do. You are a redeemer. You take what, what was once broken and you put it back together. And Lord, I know some of us, some of the students in here maybe have, have never known a life apart from you. And I pray that they never would. That the commitments that they made when they were younger, the belief that they've had before would turn into trust, would turn into a commitment. That you might be their personal redeemer. It wouldn't just be general, but it'd be personal. That they, like Paul, would be able to say, you are my God my Savior, that they would be able to say that. And so, Lord, we just are so grateful for who you are in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.